0: You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Uh... We sang a little bit less there at the beginning. We're going to sing more at the end than we typically do, and we're going to spend a little bit more time in response to today's sermon. Uh, Thankfully, now that we have a director of worship, we can actually think even more carefully about some of these things, and I'm so grateful for the time that we've been able to spend. Uh, You can open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, and if you're joining us online, we're so glad that you're with us and that you're able to tune in, we would encourage you to open a Bible to Daniel chapter 9, and uh, no matter where you are, another option would be to go to Version and to the events that are there, and we have an Oak Hill event, and there is uh, sermon notes that you can find there, application questions for later. Uh, we would just encourage you uh, to have God's Word open, to be ready uh, to apply God's Word and this morning, you're also probably going to want some place where you can either write or even type a note on your phone, uh, because that's actually where we're going to start right now. I'm to have you write some things down, and uh, I want to get you thinking about the answers to a couple of questions, okay? Uh, so the first thing that I want you to write down is the answer to this question right here. Uh, how do you believe God views your sin and deals with your sin? How do you believe that God views your sin and deals with your sin? This is from God's perspective right now, okay? How do you believe that God views your sin and deals with your sin? i give you a little bit of time to write. I realize you might not have gotten the full theology of sin written down yet, but uh, I want to move to the second question now. How do you view your sin and deal with your sin? And I want you to be honest with that question. Not, Not how are you supposed to view your sin and deal with your sin. How do you? view your sin and deal with your sin, when you are confronted with a specific sin in your life, when you see, oh wait, I shouldn't be involved in that, or I shouldn't be thinking that way, or I shouldn't be feeling that way, or, or I see something that I should be doing but I haven't, what is your typical response to that? Give you a little bit more time to think because I really want your hearts to be ready and, and processing this this morning. Okay, as you finish writing up the answers to those two questions, I want you to consider, is there consistency between the two answers that you just wrote down? In other words, do you view your sin the same way God views your sin? Do do you deal with your sin in the same way that God deals with your sin? Would both of those answers that you just wrote down be consistent with how the Bible says God views sin and deals with sin? Maybe your answers are consistent with each other, but they're not consistent with God's Word. We've been in a sermon series in the book of Daniel called Indestructible Kingdom. And it's been our goal that we would give our undivided allegiance to the indestructible kingdom of God. That's a, that's a pretty tall order. That's, that's, that's like really asking for a whole life, all in kind of discipleship that we're going after as people. And and I pray that that's been your goal too. And I know I've heard from a lot of you that God is just challenging you in these areas and he's stirring up new things in your heart. And I'm so grateful for that. And and, um, I also realize this, that if we are going to grow in undivided allegiance to God and his kingdom, then we're going to have to come face to face with some other allegiances that we might have. We're going to have to come face to face with some sins that we want to hold on to. Some ways of living and thinking that we want to hold on to that we're going to have to get rid of. And listen, we all have that, right? But that we all have that is not an excuse to hold on to them. We all have that means we all have some work to do to move toward this undivided allegiance. Because listen, we have to come to the terms with the fact that sin is essentially treason against the God who created us. Like, Let's not minimize what sin is by saying we all have it. Sin is treason against our Creator. Sin is turning on God and saying, I know better than you. You might be the one who created me, but I have what is best for my life. And if the Lord in His mercy reveals sin to us, we then have to know what to do in order to deal with it. Too often we, we run between two fleshly extremes when we're confronted with our sin. One, one extreme, we're hiding it, and we're, we're kind of pretending like it doesn't exist, maybe managing it over here. The other extreme would be to uh, to do, do nothing, to, to minimize it, to rationalize it. We say things like, well, well, I'm only human, and we all sin, and it's, it's no big deal because we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace, and so I don't have to really even think about sin. Both of those extremes of hiding or rationalizing our sin, they're inconsistent with the way that God deals with our sin in Jesus Christ. The thing that brings consistency between God's view of sin and our view of sin, the thing that brings consistency between God's way of dealing with sin and our way of dealing with sin is this. Listen, it's confession. Confession is what brings consistency between God's view and our view of sin. Confession is essential to maintaining a heart of allegiance to the indestructible kingdom of God. If we're going to be grace-transformed, truly free, joy-filled, loving Christians, then we've got to learn how to confess sin. And thankfully today, we have a great tutor in confessing sin. and His name is the prophet Daniel. As we dig into chapter 9, we want to learn how to confess our sin truthfully because God redeems mercifully. Confess your sin truthfully knowing that God redeems mercifully. So your Bibles are open to to Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to look at verse 1. Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, I butchered that. You know. by descent Amid who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign I Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of des- the desolations of Jerusalem namely seven, 70 years 70 years so as usual, Daniel opens this chapter, this new section of his book, this new uh, encounter with God that he's going to have with a time marker. Uh, here we see it's the first year of the reign of Darius. Now, you, you might remember this king from uh, earlier studies in the book. Uh, he was the, the king that overthrew Babylon's king, Belshazzar, at the end of chapter 5, the the drunken party with the temple vessels, uh, that guy, and, and and he came in and he, he overthrew Belshazzar, and, and uh, he was the king that appointed Daniel to a very high position in Daniel chapter 6, uh, but he only then threw him in a lion's den like the next day, and um, it's in this same year, the first year of his reign, that Daniel prays this prayer of confession that we're about to read in chapter 9. You might remember that the whole reason Daniel was thrown into the lion's den in the first place was because he was told to pray to no one but the king. And instead he prayed three times a day with his window wide open to the whole world for the whole world to see, and he would pray toward Jerusalem. So in Daniel chapter six, we see Daniel's habit of prayer, and in Daniel chapter nine, we get a window into the content of Daniel's prayer, at least one of them, and we find out in verse 2 that Daniel was prompted in prayer by the reading of Scripture by the reading of Scripture. Like, like That's a really common pattern in the Scriptures, by the way, and we try to emphasize this often at Oak Hill. If you want to pray in a way that is led by the Holy Spirit, and you want to know that that wasn't just your pizza last night coming up, it wasn't just some darting thought that flashed into your head, you want to pray in a way that is led by the Holy Spirit, pray according to the word that he has inspired. Like We know the Spirit loves this book because he's the one who inspired human authors to write it. And so Daniel is looking at the prophet Jeremiah and he's he's reading this and he's inspired to pray. John Piper once wrote, uh, where the mind isn't brimming with the Bible, the heart is not generally brimming with prayer. Where the mind is not brimming with the Bible, the heart is not generally brimming with prayer. The source of Daniel's prayer was the Scriptures themselves. And specifically, Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah, uh, most likely in chapter 25, because he perceived that the time of the exile was 70 years. Now, I don't think that this was like news to him, but he's just, I I think this is what's happening. Remember, he he was carried off into Babylon as a teenager, right? And that was during the first siege of Jerusalem. So right at the beginning of the exile is when Daniel went to Babylon. That was, that was 68 or so years ago. and He's an old man now, and he's reading Jeremiah, and he's like, wait a minute, our time's almost up. We get to go home soon. And he's believing what he's reading. And I also believe, though, that he was prompted by the Scriptures to remember something else. That confession precedes God's restoration of Israel to their land. So just a few chapters after that, in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, where he he would have been reading, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Listen, then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when, what? You seek me with all your heart. You seek me with all your heart. We love the Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, but when does it happen? When we seek Him with all our heart. I believe he would have also remembered Solomon's dedication prayer at the temple that, that was describing Israel's coming rebellion. And when, when they prayed, God would hear them. So, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their Daniel sees that God's plan of redemption is unfolding, that the time of restoration is coming, but he also knew that he must participate in that restoration by seeking God's face in the confession of sin. I think we're sometimes afraid to confess our sin. If we say it out loud, we actually have to admit that there's something wrong in our hearts that needs to change. If we say it out loud, we we can't keep maintaining our sin or enjoying our sin. If we say it out loud, we keep deceiving ourselves and and, and thinking that that we're all that and that we we can manage this. We can fix it on our own. We can get over this. If we say it out loud, we might actually have to believe God at His word that He can transform us repentance but Daniel shows that, that confession is a gateway to experiencing and applying God's active mercy confession is a gateway to experiencing and applying God's active mercy so we're going to confess our sin truthfully knowing that God redeems mercifully it starts here confess your sin truthfully confess your sin truthfully so let's look at Daniel's confession in verses 3 to 19 We're going to read the whole confession here and then go back and notice a few things, okay? Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets who spoke in Your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To You, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel who, who are near to the, and, and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws which He set before us by His servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed Your law and turned aside, refusing to obey Your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. Him, He has confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by Your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done, and we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself as at this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for all, the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all, the, all who are around us. Now therefore, O oh God, listen to the prayer of your servant and do his pleas for mercy and, and for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear by your name stop there for now I love how raw how honest how truthful Daniel is all throughout his confession he's not just saying words he's broken over this he's dressed in uncomfortable clothes to show that he's mourning. He's, he's fasting and refusing to eat to show that he has a hunger for God and to help to even develop and recognize his hunger for God. Daniel has truly seen who God is and he truly sees Israel's sin and listen, even his own role in their sin. Notice, he doesn't put himself outside of the sinful group. He doesn't confess somebody else's sin for them. He recognizes that he is a sinner with them. He uses words like we and us. Daniel's a good man, listen. He's a faithful prophet, but he still needs a merciful God because he is not sinless. Daniel is not the savior of the book of Daniel. He needs another. I want you to notice something about Daniel's prayer. As well he doesn't confess with the word but like kids you ever use the word but when you're confessing something to your parents teenagers like like sure I hit my brother but he did something mean sure I I stayed out past curfew but I wasn't doing anything bad while I was out I just lost track of time That's it's not a good habit, by the way, when you're confessing because too often we take that into our relationship with God. Daniel could have been like, "Uh, I confess Israel's sin, but uh, you know I've been faithful to you this entire time in Babylon. I'm your man, God. Or, we've sinned against you, but what can we say? We're only human. Or, I know we're sinful, but I know you're a God of love and so you can overlook sin, can't you? Or, I I know I sinned, but I'm going to try harder next time. Daniel doesn't use the word but. He agrees with God about his sin and the sin of Israel. He confesses truthfully. We see in Daniel's scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer that he intricately weaves together these two truths, uh, the truth about who God is and the truth about his sin. And I want this to be instructive for us this morning uh, that we need to confess sin in the same way. It's of first importance that our confession is rooted in the truth about God. So if we're going to confess truthfully, it starts with confessing the truth about God. Notice how Daniel jumps right out of the gate with worship. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, which is also the Hebrew word for praise. The word for confession there is the same word for praise. And He says, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Daniel's confession is is rooted in worship. And and he confesses truth about God. He he doesn't just start with worship, it's it's really woven throughout. And and he doesn't just focus on one attribute or one type of attribute of God. He he focuses on many. And I think when we think about confession, we often think about God's more fearsome attributes. When I use that word, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Like his holiness, his wrath. And for certain, we need to confess because God is holy and fearsome and awesome. But confession is also stirred up by God's more relational attributes. His love, His grace, His mercy. Because without those, confession makes no sense at all. And when confessing our sins before God, we need to confess the truth about all of God's attributes. So so Daniel is sure to confess and worship both God's fearsome attributes and his more relational attributes so look at God's fearsome attributes that are mentioned with me for a moment they're going to be up on the screen for you first he's great and awesome look at verse four you're great and awesome you are you are totally beyond us God verse seven he's righteous He never once moves off of His perfect standard. He's always right in all His ways. Verse 16, He's angry and wrathful. He says, let your anger and wrath turn away. In saying that, Daniel gives us this sense that God has every right to be angry about sin. Our sin is an offense against who He is. Verse nineteen: He's He's jealous for His name. De- delay not, O oh God, for Your own sake. Forget forget about what we deserve. You deserve better than us trampling on Your name, and dishonoring You, and dragging Your name through the mud. God's fearsome attributes make our confession necessary. Listen, He's holy and our sin must be dealt with. But it's His relational attributes that make our confession possible. God's fearsome attributes make our confession necessary, but it's His relational attributes that make our confession possible. Possible And so often I think that people confess because they're only afraid of what God might do if they don't confess. They have this unhealthy view of both confession and God that He's just some angry, far-off, distant curmudgeon. But they miss that confession is an invitation into relationship. It's an invitation out of hiding and into the light. It's an invitation for God to draw near to you because you're humbling yourself and recognizing yourself for who you truly are. It's an invitation across the threshold of His transforming grace. Notice how Daniel appeals to God's more relational attributes throughout the prayer. The, the relational attributes that Daniel mentions. He, verse 4, you keep covenant steadfast love verse 9 to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness he owns them verse 13 we have not entreated the Lord our God seeking his favor Daniel is implying that if they would have just sought God God would have been generous with his favor but they refused putting off confession is putting off the generosity of God's favor He also remembers that God is redeeming by remembering the exodus from Egypt in verse 15. He says, Now, O Lord, your God, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and done wickedly. Covenant keeping and loving, merciful and forgiving, generous with his favor, redeeming. like Isn't that a picture of someone you want to confess your sins to? Isn't that kind of inviting? You have to know who God is and that He is both holy and merciful for confession to make sense. You don't honor God by having a one-sided view of Him. You you don't honor God by, by acting like He is this only wrathful God. And you don't honor God by acting like He is only... A soft God. And once you know both of these realities, confession is the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. Understand, Daniel is not just repeating some theological terms here. Like, this is a God he knows. This is a God he's experienced in all of his fearsome attributes and all of his graceful attributes. and, And he knows he must go to God in confession because this is the only response. Think about that: all that Daniel has seen and experienced up until now. God's judgment in exile. Like he was part of the people that got sent out from the land. God's power in the visions that he's seen. But he's also seen God's protection in a foreign land. He's, he's seen his own rise to authority in Babylon. He's he's seeing God's protection of him and his friends in, in the lion's den, in the fiery furnace. Daniel has known God. And it drives him to confession of his sins and the sins of his people. Knowing God will lead you to see yourself as a sinner in great need of merciful redemption. As we confess the truth about God, our hearts are are stirred to confess the truth about our sin. So that's the next part we want to look at as we kind of go back through this confession again. I want us to notice some things about the way that Daniel confesses sin. He confesses recognizing that sin is a violation of God's holy and merciful law. Sin is a violation of God's holy and merciful law. Just, here's a, a sampling of how Daniel confesses sin throughout and describes it. Verse 5, he describes it as turning aside from your commandments and rules. Verse 6, describes it as not listening to, the ser- to God's servants, the prophets. Verse 7, as treachery committed against God. Verses 9 and 10, as rebellion and not obeying the voice of the Lord our God and the law and the prophets. Verse 11, as transgressing the law and turning aside from God's way. Verse 13, he describes it as iniquities and failing to gain insight by the truth that God has provided. Any time that we violate God's moral law, any time we fail to love God and to love others the way that he created us to do, any time we seek our own way and our own standard instead of his, it's time to confess. No ifs ands or buts about it. No trying to reason with God, no minimizing the effects of our sin. If we seek our own way instead of God's, it's time to confess. And so many of us are, are willing to, to raise our hands and say, I'm a sinner. But how many of us are willing to put our finger on a thought or an act and say, I have sinned? It's hard. Hard to do. But it's necessary. And that's because sin brings with it open shame. Sin brings open shame. Verses 7 and 8 both say, to us belongs open shame. <laughs> And this was especially true for Israel because their sin had resulted in their removal from the land that God had promised them. So this is kind of like their dad was giving them a spanking in the middle of Walmart. Like how how shameful would that feel? that may seem like a harsh thing to do, but listen, it's the reality of what our sin deserves. There's a reason people sin in secret and try to hide it. That There's a reason why we minimize sin and downplay its effects. It's because sin is legitimately harmful and legitimately shameful. Remember what Adam and Eve did when they first sinned? They sewed together some lame, big-leaf loincloth thinking that they could hide the nakedness of their shame. But do you remember what God did? He gave them garments of animal skin. God has a way of dealing with our shame that is a ton better than our own way of dealing with our shame. And it comes through confession. 1 John 1 instructs us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Confess because sin is a violation of His holy and merciful law and then because it brings open shame. And then third, confess because sin is both personal and corporate. Sin is both personal and corporate. See, in our Western culture, Individualism has taken over the way that we view our relationship with God, the way that we read the Bible. And so, any idea of confessing someone else's sin or confessing sin as a part of a whole is like almost impossible for us to fathom. Like, how could I be a part of something that maybe I didn't commit myself? But the biblical writers understood correctly that the sin of one. Brought judgment on the whole. And as we own our sin together, there's no finger pointing. There's no confessing someone else's sin and saying, if they just did better, our church would be a whole lot better off. Daniel puts himself right in the middle of the rest of Israel. And he confesses alongside them. Verse 5, he says, we have sinned. Verse 6, we have not listened. Verse 7, to us belongs open shame. To Verse 8, we have sinned against you. Verse 9, we have rebelled. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law. Verse, uh, verse 11 again, we have sinned against him. Verse 13, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. And as we get into the next part, he's going to say, I have confessed my sin and the sin of Israel we have to recognize that our sin doesn't only affect us. Our sin directly affects others. And others people's sins directly affect us. We grow and we are stifled in our growth together. Listen, your willingness to confess your sin to God has a direct effect on the rest of our church. Your willingness to turn from your sin and my willingness to turn from my sin and pursue God's ways has a direct effect on the people sitting around you. We are a body. We either spiritually grow or we are spiritually stifled together. So there are times when we need to confess personal sins because of that. Ways that we as individuals have rebelled against God. This might be that you might be confessing that maybe you as a parent have misrepresented God the Father to your kids because you got impatient with them. That's sin that needs to be confessed. Maybe it's ways that you've let bitterness or anger rule your heart Maybe you've held something against your spouse for a long time instead of forgiving them as God in Christ forgives us. Maybe, maybe ways that we've loved the things of this world more than God, we've, we've turned people or things or image into idols and valuing those things instead of valuing God. Really breaking any of the Ten Commandments even in our hearts. Those are times for personal confession. When we confess our own individual sins to God and and even identify them to one another so that we can then see each other grow and help each other grow and bear our burdens together. Even our personal sins affect the whole church body. But then there are also other times when we confess our corporate sins, specifically as a church. Ways that we have turned the church into something it was never supposed to be. I know we have a great church, a healthy church. I'm thankful for that church. Thankful for you. But how many of us can say that we have never made the church about something that it's not? Attending a program or just showing up on a Sunday morning out of routine rather than to be a part of a body that we're gathering with? How many of us can say that we've never judged something going on in the church according to our own preferences or our self-righteousness? Like, why in the world are they doing that? And in the process, how many of us have at times lost sight of the fact that the church is all about making disciples to the glory of God? How many of us have valued outward performance in the church? Maybe that's personal, putting on our Sunday best. Maybe it's measuring some standard of excellence in the music or preaching, judging success by external indicators of checking boxes or having certain numbers measured instead of measuring spiritual fruit. Listen. To Anytime we do that is trading God's desires for the church with our own. And when we see it, we we don't point the finger at other members or leaders. We confess our part of the problem because we are all part of the same body. We must confess because sin is a violation of God's holy and merciful law because it brings open shame, because it is both personal and corporate. And the last thing that we need from Daniel's prayer is that we confess because sin cannot be dealt with according to our own righteousness. Look at verse 18. I want to talk about the Gospel in the Old Testament. For we do not present our pleas before You because of our righteousness, but because of Your great mercy. That's so important. That is so important. When we see the fearsome character of God, His, His holiness and righteousness and awesomeness, we know that we can't deal with our sin according to our own righteousness. We need the mercy of God. That's the gospel. Your, Your sin created a debt that you cannot pay. My sin created a debt that I cannot pay. It earned us everlasting torment in hell. But God, in His righteousness and mercy, chose to take our punishment and give it to Jesus, His perfect and spotless Son, instead of us. Praise the Lord. And Jesus rose from the grave so that you and I could be counted righteous before God, so that we could be cleansed from our sin, so that we could stand before Him as His church clothed in white for all of eternity in His spotless righteousness alone, and that we could grow closer in relationship to Him. Confessing my sin is essential first to believing the gospel. Because I have to realize that I'm a sinner who can't deal with my sin according to my own righteousness. I need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Listen, there is no Christian ever who has never confessed their sin to God. It's impossible. And if you've never believed that you need the righteousness of Christ instead of your own being good... If you think that you're good enough and that that God is, is just going to accept you because He's a loving God or that you can even make yourself good enough at some point in the future. I would urge you, think again. God is both fearsome and relational. And He provides a way into His awesome presence through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you confess that you're a sinner and you cast yourself upon the mercy of God alone for salvation, He will save you. He will forgive your sin. He will cleanse you from unrighteousness. And for those who have already experienced that forgiveness, confession is essential to our regular, ongoing experience of the gospel that David described earlier today. Because it reminds us that we daily need a redemption that we cannot earn by ourselves. And we have a Redeemer who we have a continual need to be cleansed from our sin for the active transforming grace of Jesus to wash away remaining sin in our lives. Yes, we are positionally righteous before Christ, but we all have remaining sin. Do you have remaining sin in your life? Raise your hand. Then you have confession to have. And you're not re washing yourself in the blood, you're going to the same. Source and recognizing the same redemption that has been provided for you that you need so that you don't try to improve yourself in your own power. We have a Redeemer who not only confesses our sin for us like Daniel did for Israel, but who paid for our sin with his own blood and whoever stands in God's heavenly throne room applying his blood and confessing His work before the Father so that we might be redeemed. Confession reminds me of the price that Jesus paid for the sins that I've committed so that I'll turn from them and embrace His righteousness. Do you confess sin regularly and truthfully? In your prayers of confession, do you acknowledge both the, the fearsome and relational attributes of God? Do you confess your sin truthfully? Are you truthful about your sin? Or do you minimize it and rationalize it? You can confess your sin truthfully knowing that God redeems mercifully. That's where we're headed in this next section beginning in verse 20. Know that God redeems mercifully. So Daniel like dumps his heart out before God. And I wonder like if he ever questioned is God going to answer? I mean, Maybe he didn't because he knew the 70 years were coming and he knew that this was all God's plan and so he knew he was praying in accordance with God's will. But, but have you ever questioned that? You, you pour out your heart to God for mercy, but you wonder if God actually wants to give it? Well, Daniel wouldn't have to question for very long. Look at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the lord my god for the holy hill of my god while i was speaking in prayer the man gabriel whom i had seen in the vision at the first angel gabriel right you remember him he came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice he made me understand speaking with me and saying oh daniel I have have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. He's going to go into what that vision is. We see here that God is eager to redeem. God is eager to read. He loves it. He loves doing it. Dan- Daniel just starts confessing, and, and God is like, go, Gabriel, go, go. Give him the answer. Go now. Go, go, go. And Gabriel's like, like, like apologizing by the end of Daniel's prayer. He's like, uh, 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 I'm sorry it took me so long. I had to fly here to get here. Like, if it was God going Himself, he would have probably gotten here by now, but I'm just tired. And but here's the vision. He gives this message. He's like, I want you to know that your pleas for mercy have been heard and you are greatly loved. Isn't that awesome when Daniel has just poured out of his soul confession to hear those words? How sweet they must have been. You are greatly loved. Believer in Jesus Christ, when you confess your sin, swiftly hear the answer. You are greatly loved. Because of Christ's work. It reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son. His son severely sins against his father. But upon his return, the father is running to greet him at the end of the road and to bring him in and to throw him a party and to show him abundant mercy and grace that's how we need to view our confession. God is not reluctant to forgive. He is eager to redeem. How merciful is our God. And so then Gabriel tells Daniel uh, how God is going to do that. This is such an incredible prophecy that comes next. And I know it's like the end of the sermon, uh, but you're going to have to bear with like the hardest part of the sermon for the rest of the time, okay? Uh, that's how God ordered the chapter. I'm not, uh, you know, deal with it. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So, what we are reading in these next verses are a detailed, specific prophecy about Israel's future redemption, specifically Israel. But we get to be included in that, and I'll show you where. But before we get to the breakdown of the times that God is going to redeem his people, uh, we see the purpose, the outcomes that He's going to accomplish in His redemption. You see, God is not only eager to redeem, He's also purposeful to redeem. So here are six purposes that God has for our redemption that He mentions in verse 24. He says, finish the transgression. In other words, allow the full time of Israel's transgression to come. Let them get all their sin out. Put an end to sin. There's going to be a decisive victory over sin in these next 70 weeks that he's going to describe. Atone for iniquity. He's going to shed blood as the price to be paid for them to come into relationship with God. They would have understood that from the animal sacrificial system of the temple in their day. We understand it as we just sang. Jesus paid it all. In other words, he's going to have complete mercy upon their sin. The first three purposes. He's, he's not only going to deal with their sin in the past, but then the, the next three purposes are going to be making a way for them in the future. So, first of all, he's going to bring in an everlasting righteousness. There's going to be a new kingdom brought to earth where Jesus is going to reign in total righteousness. For them, they would have known it as the Messiah. We know him as Jesus. It's going to seal both vision and prophet. There's going to be an end to visions and prophecies because there's going to be no, no more need of them. Jesus would be present with them. God's going to be in their midst. It's going to be sealed up. Everything that, ha- that said would happen w- will happen, and then there's going to be no more. And then anoint a most holy place. There's going to be direct access to God sprinkled by the blood of the spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ. These are the purposes for God's plan of redemption. He he knew them before Daniel ever prayed a prayer of confession, but because of Daniel's prayer, Daniel's now ready to hear and understand them. God redeems mercifully. He's eager to do it. He's purposeful to do it. Finally, He's resolved to do it. God is resolved to redeem. So he, he lays out the purpose for the 70 weeks and now he breaks them down. The term for week, by the way, is literally uh, just the number seven. seven. And so when we're talking about 70 weeks, we're, we're talking literally about 77s. Now this is the point where you're gonna have to stay with me okay. You get the period of time of set what 77s is in the context. And so here, almost all biblical scholars believe that that this refers to weeks of years or a period of seven years. So here we're dealing with 70 periods of seven years. 70 times 7 is 490. 490. And so it's also important to understand that we're, not talking about Roman calendar years. So this is going to get all the more confusing, and you can go study it on your own later, but we're talking about uh, Jewish years of 12 months, which would be 30 days each. So that's 360 days. That's going to have an effect on how you understand how this is all playing out. I'm not going to do all the math for you, but I want you to understand if you ever go back and look at this. So really, when, when thinking about this today, we're thinking about 70 periods of 2,520 days, or we're thinking about a time period of total 176,400 days. And in these three verses, God is going to use this amount of 176,400 days to outline the rest of redemptive history as it relates to Israel. This is amazing. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So we start with 69 of the 70 weeks. 483 Jewish years. And the event that starts that, if you look at... at verse 25 again, the event that starts the first of the 69 weeks is the decree by a king to restore and build Jerusalem. Specifically the streets, which is what the word squares refers to, and the moat, which would be the exterior fortressing of the wall of a city. And so the, the event that starts it is the rebuilding, uh, the decree that rebuilds Jerusalem. The event that ends the 69 weeks is the coming of. Of an anointed one. You ready to get excited? Okay. This isn't just math geeks that will get excited about this. If you love Jesus, you'll get excited about this. So there are a few decrees by Persian rulers to go rebuild things in Jerusalem. But the streets and the wall was specifically decreed by King Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. We read about that in Nehemiah 1 and 2. And someone has done the work to measure this all out. Okay, 49 Jewish years later, that's seven years of seven, Seven, seven sevens of years, I'm sorry, 396 B.C. is when they finished the wall in the temple. And additionally, when the last Old Testament prophet finished his prophecy. Everything was wrapped up after seven weeks. God has resolved to work out his redemption, but that's not all. If we move forward 62 more weeks from that, 434 Jewish years, after doing all the math, you get down to the month and likely even to the day of a very important event the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. You got goosebumps yet? I do. Palm Sunday, we sometimes call it. What was happening on that day? The moment when Jesus was presented before the people of Israel, the citizens of Jerusalem, as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Prince. God is resolved to work out His redemption, but that's not all. In verse 26, we read, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing." So, what happened just one week after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem? He was cut off. He was falsely accused. His clothes were stripped off. He was taken outside of the city. He was crucified. And from his own perspective, he was also cut off from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was Jesus' cry. And because he was forsaken, we can be forgiven. This was God's ultimate work of redemption. And it was how God was answering Daniel's prayer. The way that God would maintain both His righteousness and mercy when His people cried out in confession was by cutting Jesus off. By cutting off His anointed Son from His presence and giving Him the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Our prayers of confession are heard through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But sadly, Israel would continue to reject their Messiah and God would punish them by removing their temple and their worship. Verse 26, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war desolations are decreed. So now we have a, a different priest, a priest who is to, uh, I'm sorry, a prince, a different prince, a, a prince who is to come. This is, a in the first century, a type of the Antichrist, like we talked about earlier, because we, we see that he brings destruction, and in 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed and made desolate. And ever since that time, people have been asking the question, is there any mercy left for Israel? Is there any hope for them in the future? Or did they finally just sin too much that God was done with them and He started over in His church? By the way, this time that we're in right now is a time where we get to share and be grafted in and appreciate the redemption of Israel's Messiah. A borrowed Messiah, yes, but a sufficient Messiah for us. Question on the table then, is there any mercy for Israel? That's where verse 27 and Daniel's next vision in chapter 10 come in. So far we've talked about 69 of the 70 weeks, but the 70th week for Israel is delayed significantly until the full number of Gentiles come into the church. It's it's still in our future. This current age wasn't in this prophecy because the vision was specifically about Israel's redemption. That was the direct response of Daniel's prayer. So look at verse 27. And he, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So there's a time coming in the future, a period of seven years. It could be very soon for us today. When Israel is again occupying their land, when they start worshiping God again, I believe by recognizing the true sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and where the Antichrist seeks to strip that away, and he makes a strong covenant with many to overthrow the true worship of God. But we know from Daniel's other visions and from Revelation that this is the moment of their ultimate and final redemption where they see Jesus as their true Messiah and the time immediately preceding the destruction of the desolator and the return of Christ. If we we believe that God had all that planned out up until the moment of Jesus' return in Jerusalem, How much more does that build your faith that He's coming again? God has this all planned out. He always has. He is eager to redeem. He is purposeful to redeem. He is resolved to redeem. And so the question for you today is this. Do you understand and trust God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ? Do you trust it? Israel's anointed prince can be your prince too. If you would confess your sin and you would trust him for salvation, confess your sin truthfully, knowing that God redeems mercifully. So we're going to respond a little bit differently to God's Word today. We're going to to sing an old hymn uh, that was written in 1772 by a man named William Cowper called There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Over the history of this song, uh, people have tried to change the lyrics so that it would be a little bit less gory because we don't like the idea of blood having to cover for sin. The song is a reminder that it's only the blood of Jesus that can wash us clean from the vile nature of sin. And it's a reminder that he's eager to do this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to sing two stanzas, one of which uh, David specifically wrote reflecting on this place of confession that we're talking about right now. And then we're going to read a corporate confession together. And and then I'm going to leave some time of silence with that corporate confession on the screen. And I want you to take that in. I want you to make it personal, even make it specific if you need to. And then we're going to sing another verse, and then we're going to have another time of corporate confession, followed by another pause, where you're spending time with the Lord. We're singing again, and we're going to have another time of confession. And These are going to be about our personal lives, about our corporate lives, about our witness in the world, and the fame of God's name. Let's confess truthfully. I want you to know I'm not asking you to confess something just because I tell you to. Let the Holy Spirit work on your heart. Confess what He reveals to you. And then let the words of his mercy pour over you as we sing. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.